Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I am your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm joined by Alex Bovin. Uh, for those of you who don't know Alex, he has an MS degree in physiology, and his main research interests have been mechanisms for muscle hypertrophy, uh, the current hypertrophy literature, blood flow restriction training, volume per session, and protein. Uh, so that's pricking a lot of our listeners' ears, and I'm sure there's much more to you, Alex. So let the listeners know a little bit more about you. Yeah, absolutely. So again, my name is Alex Bovin. Um, I've been doing a lot of research the last four or five years in the exercise science world, uh, clinical exercise physiology world. Um, I worked as a research assistant in a few different hospitals doing clinical exercise. So we looked at a lot of metabolism, a lot of the muscle stuff. I'm obsessed about muscles, you know, metabolism, muscles, how they grow, you know, things that affect muscles. Um, it's almost to a, a point towards weird, right? Not muscle um, worshipping though. <laughs> yeah that's too um, far <laughs> yeah well I don't, I don't know we'll see um but yeah i got my master's degree this past year in uh exercise physiology and nutrition science so i really hamper the physiology side of things more than nutrition um now i'm kind of diving in, into the nutrition world so if you read my articles there's always something like nutrition supplement related then like heavy kind of like heavy physiology and i try and bridge the gap as well to the listeners um but yeah i'm I would guess you would say researcher, um, maybe one day get a PhD and be a real scientist. But for now, we'll just hover around my MS. <laughs> and are you uh, a coach yourself or do you um, try to train for anything in particular yourself as well? Yeah, so I was, I've been a natural bodybuilder for about seven years, going on eight. Um, this year, I've been taking a little bit of a hiatus um, because I, I was sick for such a long time. I lost quite a bit. But yeah, I natural bodybuild myself. I haven't been in a competition. So um, I'm training to be in a competition, so I guess I can't call myself a bodybuilder yet. Um, but I do uh, coach online quite a bit. Um, I've had mostly bodybuilders. Every now and then I'll get a strength guy, um, but mostly physique. Uh, I like physique and uh, body composition. Cool. Perfect. Yeah, I, I don't know what the, the definition is of a, a bodybuilder. And is it a sport? Is it not a sport? What do you have to be to <laughs> call yourself that? So I, th I think you're fine calling yourself a natural bodybuilder. So the first thing I wanted to touch on was something that um, Alex kind of forwarded over to me and I thought it sounded really exciting. It's something we've never touched on the podcast before. And I think many of the listeners are aware of BCAAs. They kind of came into the industry and became this massive fad and all these wonderful flavors of Extend, um, which were fantastic at the time. Uh, but now it's kind of come to a point where I think the evidence-based kind of arena have decided that BCAAs aren't kind of worth it. And that's something I wanted to touch on with you, Alex, is because we've never really gone into the, the myths on the podcast or debunking kind of BCAAs and what really do they have to be used for. So um, I'd love to just let you rock it and uh, go over that. Sweet, sweet. Yeah. So BCAs, man, uh, they're amino acid, right? We all know that, but they're a very specific kind of amino acid. They're branched chained amino acids. And I think that's kind of important because um, that, that gets glossed over really quickly. Uh, branched chain amino acids, it's, it's whatever. But it's specifically three amino acids, right? Valine, leucine, isoleucine. Um, they're called branch chain because the actual structure of amino acid, um, they're all very similar if you look at the structure. Uh, if you do a quick Google search of amino acids, they all look very much the same. There's, there's a carbon um, center, and then there's four bonds. So that's basically what carbon does. It has four bonds. Um, so there's a carboxyl group. There's like an NH3 group, which is the amine group, amino acid. Um, and the hydrogen, which again, acid. So, and then there's also this weird tail part of the amino acid, um, which is the chain part. And all these chains, those chains, those side chains is what makes amino acids different from one, one another. So branch chain amino acids have this weird branchy tail of carbon. So they're called branch chains. That's like demystifying branch chain. They're not magical. They're just, they have this weird chain and they have these similar effects. Um, or at least we see these similar effects with branch chain amino acids. Um, so out of the nine essential amino acids, branch chains do make up three of them, and they seem to stimulate muscle protein synthesis a lot. Um, so when we, uh, leucine is pretty much the, the main guy, right? We hear leucine all the time. It's almost like banging my head against the wall at this point because all you hear about is leucine. And leucine is interesting. However, in the research, we see leucine stimulate MPS, muscle protein synthesis, quite a bit. Now, when you add leucine and valine, it's even higher. 
when you add more amino acids, more of the essential amino acids, it's even higher. What's interesting is you can't really build muscle without the other amino acids, which is very important. Um, and a lot of the research that looks at the muscle protein synthetic response, they're not really looking at muscle protein synthesis with BCAs or EAAs. What they're looking at is like uh, mTOR, uh, mainland target rapamycin, which is like this fancy kinase that's in the cell that governs muscle protein synthesis. Basically, what they see with, uh, with this research with BCAs is that you're lighting up mTOR, or maybe you see a down signaling or an up, upstream signaling of this. So it's supposed to equal growth, but we don't know that uh, with BCAs. And there's quite a bit of research now that shows that BCAs might actually decrease hypertrophy. Um, in fact, it might decrease MPS. And that all comes down to the fact that you need more amino acids. So I would go on to say maybe EAAs might be a good choice because you have the essential amino acids. But just the BCAs themselves probably don't simulate mu muscle protein synthesis. If it does, it's very transient. It goes up, goes right back down. And it's not meaningful. It's not like this large, huge, like, boom, you get this giant spike in MPS after training. Um, so you definitely need the other amino acids. Another thing that's interesting is when you take these BCAs, they're in their free form, right? Well, it turns out in the, in the, in the gut, in the GI tract, that dye and tripeptides are absorbed better. So taking the intact protein and your body breaking it down how it wants to, it tends to absorb better and you have more bioavailability when taking these free amino acids. Uh, so I think that's pretty important as well. Um, does that make sense? Or did I go a little too tangent on that? No, it makes sense. Um, that you need the whole protein and that the, the BCAAs on their own aren't doing what we want them to be doing so it's almost like the eaas like you've mentioned um those are the the essential amino acids those are the ones we can't get from our own body to produce them which i guess is why you mentioned that those would be maybe more suitable um would you say even like a, a whey protein or whey isolate might even be a superior option or what are your views there yeah absolutely so uh whey protein uh any type of dairy uh high quality meat uh, high quality meat, high quality protein from meat, rather, uh, they're going to have a substantial amount of BCAs in them and all the essential amino acids and the other amino acids you need. So you can just skip out on the expensive lemonade when you're sipping, you know, BCAs at the gym because it's just, it's not going to do anything for you. And if you have that good protein mixed meal beforehand, and you've talked a lot about nutrition timing um, with other guests and as well as yourself, I've seen a lot of your podcasts with nutrition timing, you're, you're set. You have a lot of amino acids that have been a digested and absorbed and they're ready to go they're ready to do their job in, in plasma so you don't have to be sipping on these bcas it, it really makes no difference it might be negative um so bcas uh they kind of compete for transportation with other amino acids so if you give this giant burst of bcas you're going to decrease things like uh tryptophan and serotonin um serotonin is really interesting as well because it gives way to epinephrine um, the adrenal hormones, and those are really important for training. So taking high amount of BCAs can transiently decrease adrenaline hormones, and that's not a good thing while training, and it's been shown that it's actually decreased uh, uh, training, uh, your performance. So that's not good as well. So if there's any negative and not any real positive I just don't see the the concept of even taking at this point. Um, I used to take it as like a safety net, but it just really doesn't make sense. And some of the literature with like Alan Argon um, and ISSN, they've looked at BCAs for body comp, uh, physique, uh, competitions, and dieting. It didn't help uh, maintain any lean mass at all. So looking at the evidence at large, it's just like, okay, what am I doing? Like, why? What's the point? It, it doesn't make any sense at that point. It doesn't increase MPS. Uh, it may decrease MPS. Uh, it may decrease your performance in the gym. It may increase fatigue. So at large, it just doesn't really make any sense. And I guess even those who are saying, I guess they, they might say, oh, I can't notice it decreasing my performance. I imagine it's not substantial, even those. Um, they're like, well, you're like, it's an expensive flavoring of water. And they're like, yeah, but it's calorie free. And this is one of the oh. kind of myths that come out about BCAAs in that I think it's because it's not a full protein. They can't say it uh, contains, or rather they can get away with saying it contains naught calories, but it's even worse than just uh, four calories, right? 
Um, I think it's right around the four four calories a gram. Um, I'd have to look at the the paper, but there is a paper, and I and I can send that to you as well for your listeners. Um, but yeah, amino acids are calories. Period. Um, they, like you said, if there's not a full protein, some regulation in the FDA for U.S. I'm not sure what it is in, in anywhere else, but at least in the U.S., they don't have to say that it is a calorie. Just like if you have a certain amount of fat, if it's decreased to a certain level, oh, it's it's fat free, it's zero, right. no. But if you have enough of it, it's sure as hell is quite a bit of fat. Um, so same thing with amino acids. It says zero um, because of government regulations and stuff, but sure as hell, uh, they are calories. And if you get enough of them, it, it ends up being very similar to just protein, like four grams per calorie, I believe. Yeah, I think when I it came up within our like Revive Stronger Facebook group and ended up looking into it, and I think it, they were closer to even seven, some of the branch chains are even higher. So it's kind of like you're even worse off. You're like you're nearer having like the calories of alcohol there here than even protein. Yeah. So uh, not the best choice. Yeah, and they do stimulate uh, insulin a lot. Um, I don't know if that can be problematic in some cases. Um, I don't think that insulin has anything to do with fat uh burning or anything like that per se but that's just something to keep in mind if you're diabetic or something like that and you see something that says zero I'm like oh there's no carbs there's no anything uh you're still increasing insulin substantially because of leucine and other amino acids so that all has to be taken into account when you're taking a supplement you know fantastic cool i don't know if you've got anything else on bcaas but i think you did pretty well to dispel the the bcaas yeah the only other thing i would add to that is if you're a vegan or a vegetarian or someone who doesn't like lacto-olivo vegetarian, someone who does not take meat, dairy, animal products, um, BCAs are at hand for you because you're not getting those in your diet. You're not getting dairy. You're not getting high amount of BCAs naturally. So you need to supplement them. And it's been shown that if you add BCAs to a meal that's lacking, you can increase the NPS response. Um, same thing with like uh, older individuals who have that resistance, the anabolic resistance, they call it now. In the literature where they're not they need almost need a more uh higher amount of bcas or leucine to stimulate that same response as their younger counterparts um that could that could make sense that can make sense for them to take but outside of that completely save your money and put it towards whey protein if you have to have something even caffeine or creatine those are like the top three bcas just, just dump them, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I get no, that's a really good application actually of BCAAs. And I guess if someone didn't want BCAAs, could they actually just increase their total protein intake to get the extra? Would that work for them? Or I guess complementary proteins like having the rice and the pea and things, they have to consider all that. I know we're not trying to go like into vegan uh, dieting as a vegan bodybuilder, but yeah, well, first of all, if you're a vegan uh, bodybuilder, just reevaluate your life a little bit, you know, <laughs> go back to your drawing board. No, I understand. I completely understand if, um, for, for some reasons of uh, veganism and vegetarian. But so the only thing you could do if you don't want to get a supplement of BCAs or leucine to increase the NPS response is to literally double your protein intake per meal. That's the, that's in the literature I've seen about two or three times. There's not a ton of literature, but the literature I've seen is for plant proteins, you need to double them. Uh, to get the same response. Now that we still need to talk about the fact that plant proteins aren't by, very digestible. They kind of hang around the gut. Um, it's very weird uh, that they're not very bioavailable uh, per the literature. Not that plants are different. Some plants are pea, like processed pre, uh, pea protein is different. Uh, that might actually stimulate some stuff, but it's not going to be to the same extent as meat or dairy uh, whey protein at all um but the best you can get is to literally almost double your plant protein um combining sources is good but you're still going to be low in things like methanine lysine leucine valine they're still low so even when you combine them you still have to raise them substantially so i mean i i couldn't stomach that much so i would just get a bca supplement yeah. <laughs> it's it's good because um this is a personal interest of mine is um, my, my girlfriend's vegetarian she'd love to be vegan for like ethical reasons and like for the world and longevity this sort of thing for the earth um sustainability and so it's something i need to do some more research into because big part of me was like the reason i consume meat is literally for because it just makes bodybuilding like it's such a essential component to me and it's kind of like 
I need to be smart if I'm going to be going vegan. I need to think about supplementing for that. So I have a kind of a personal interest. I need to look into it a bit deeper. Yeah. And I mean, there's other things like um, I've begun to look into this a little bit as well as the agriculture, agriculture of uh, farming and cropping and vegetarian and veganism and certain things like making tofu and all that. I mean, it's actually worse for the environment than just raising some cattle. Um, and I don't have the exact statistics, but I know a lot of researchers who are into protein research and, and just nutrition aspects who have it all down to the T of how much things cost. And it's, it's a lot worse for the environment to make these giant vegan organic farms and all that. It's, it's much worse. So I still understand that you don't want to kill animals, but you might be wiping out a rainforest, uh, <laughs> which kills far more animals and maybe things we don't even know that exist yet. Um, so I still stick to, you know, cows and murdering other animals, <laughs> my gains, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, this is also, I mean, not that this is kind of out of the scope of the podcast, but it's something that I was kind of, you see, um, I was being sent links by Charlotte and kind of on the, the side of supporting obviously that. And I was like, I don't actually know kind of, this is me being skeptical. And like you just mentioned, I know that the cultivation of even some of the things they're consuming could have neg negative consequences. So it's just kind of, yeah, having a balanced view of that. But um, unless you want to delve into that further, I, we can move on to something else. I don't know if you, you've got the, you know enough about it to be able to delve into it deeply. Oh, no, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in <laughs> cultivation of crops yet. <laughs> That's fair enough. Uh, anyway, so that's the bcaa is pretty much dealt with which is fantastic um something i did want to delve in with you alex is because obviously you're a coach um and you're very very interested in hypertrophy i know you said you've got your own kind of philosophies towards periodization for hypertrophy that maybe are a little bit different to some of the other experts that have been on the the podcast and i guess even periodization itself for hypertrophy has been put under question of whether or not it's worthwhile and um, do we even need that? The literature doesn't necessarily support it just yet. Um, so I'd love to hear kind of, yeah, what you use for yourself, um, what models you use, if you do have models, what you think of periodization for hypertrophy. Um, yeah, just kick off and I'll, uh, it will develop. Yeah, so complex. Um, and I know I'll get yelled at this by someone, I'm sure. Um, so I really like Mike Erzatil's concepts and your concepts of periodization or periodization uh, i get yelled at by using that word as well um saying that's that's very athletic based and stuff um you know like strength bases and hypertrophy bases and power and um so i'll use periodization how you usually use that term in your podcast to keep that even um, and we're talking about systemic variations and training uh principles and uh variables like volume intensity and frequency um so I did DUP, daily undulated periodization, for a while. Um, and I mean the very definition of it, power day, strength day, a hypertrophy day. I was very into powerlifting at one point because I thought, hey, uh, if I can squat 500 pounds, my legs will be bigger, uh, which is not necessarily true. And that's not how progression really works. Um, but my view, kind of how I've been doing periodization for hypertrophy outcomes, growing muscle tissue, uh, has it's changed, um, but the way I've been doing this is kind of taking the concepts of MEV and MRV, um, but changing them just so. So what I mean by that is a lot of people say you need, right now you need to increase the set every week, or you need to increase the set of training every two weeks. It's almost like planning, but you can't pre-plan hypertrophy. Um, hypertrophy uh, strength is an outcome of hypertrophy. And you increase the set as an outcome of growth. So what I mean by that is if you and I are growing off, let's say we do three sets of 10 for everything. Why would we all of a sudden go to four sets? Um, I understand the overreaching possibility and the fact that maybe sometimes more is better, but not all the time. If we're getting good outcomes out of three sets, we go into four sets and then go into five sets, then go into six sets. That means we need to be growing at a rate that accommodates that amount of sets and that amount of uh, increase in load. Does that make sense? I guess so. Um, I'm not sure if uh, to, I'm sure Mike would have his own kind of rationale behind or reasoning. I guess it's a case of you're not necessarily adding sets because um, 
for that purpose of you're growing because so you need them is more of a case of you can recover and therefore the sets have that purpose to kind of keep you adapting at that maximal rate so i guess maybe you're saying we're not adapting that fast yeah that's exactly what i'm saying is you, we're just we don't adapt that quickly um to hypertrophy and if we look back like the earlier years that we trained maybe the first two three years for most people we pick off some like whatever program bro split and we grow for years um but we didn't really change much. I didn't at least. And a lot of novices don't for like years. Like the training program is pretty much the same. And there's not like this huge increase in volume, this huge increase in reps and, and load. And now it seems like the opposite is true where everyone wants to do more, 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 um, you know, more sets, more sets, more sets, more frequency, you know, increase in load whenever we can. Uh, but we just, hypertrophy takes such a long time <laughs> that it's hard to justify increasing a set. Um, every week. And I know Mike Uzatil's changed his opinion. He kind of used that as more of like a, like a rationale such theory. Um, and that you shouldn't increase the set every week, but there's still a lot of people that are still trying to do s such things and they're increasing at a rate that's just too quick. Um, but I do. So I'll go back and say my periodization model kind of consists of doing maybe things around the, for, Compound sets, benching, squatting variations, deadlifting variations, maybe sets of 10 to uh, 12 being 12 being the max, lower, uh, smaller body parts, bicep curls, triceps, things of that nature, 15 to 20. But I'll do that for like six or seven weeks and then deload. Then I'll, I'll actually do a linear type of regression and increase the load. And so that might look like 10 to 12 for compound lifts the first uh, macro cycle, then the next macro cycle might be eight to 10. The one after that might be between six to eight. And that's how I kind of go through, um, those rep ranges. And then I'll deload and I'll do it all over again starting at 10 to 12. So I've got some lashback, uh, with Mike and other people about that not being maybe as optimal and that your volume should be increasing over time forever. Um, uh, but I don't think that's the case. And I don't think volume is the end all be all. I think intensity is extremely important. Um, I think your tense intensity needs to be there. Um, and I think that's a really nice way to go through those intensities, um, and, and really expose yourself to different rep ranges within that model, that periodization model, and then go back and do it again. Now, when you do that, do that periodization model, I just explained again, you should be a little bit stronger. You should be a little bit bigger and you can add a little bit of weight to that step by step. That's just kind of how I've, I've been doing things. I've seen, seen some really great results with that. Cool. Yeah. I guess, um, you're cycling volume a little bit there anyway, like a slightly higher volume phase through a slightly lower volume phase. And in a way, I guess the sensitization to volume is maintained via that kind of manipulation. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And over time, volume does go up. And I think volume doesn't go up over time. But I, I really like getting down into those six to eight rep ranges and stimulating yep. muscle fibers that maybe weren't stimulated the best. Because just because you stimulate a muscle fiber mm. doesn't mean it's going to hypertrophy. You need to stimulate it a lot. It needs to see a lot of tension. And there's going to be a lot of cycling within that stimulation. And that gets into a lot of motor unit activation. Um, in my opinion, looking like higher rep ranges, a type of literature, not to get off on too much, too much of a tangent, but the higher rep literature, like blood flow restriction, hasn't come close to doing like a 80, 85%, uh, one rep max, um, like bicep curls, um, doing higher rep ranges is it seems to be stimulating more type one fibers mm -hmm. to me uh, just looking at the literature and we don't have too much to back back that up on but it really looks that that way um so going through those rep ranges really make sure that you're hitting that muscle and, and all the fibers that you possibly can so not to get too much off on a tangent there no i think it's it's interesting because obviously um the it's been seen like 30% of your one rep max can stimulate hypertrophy, which is pretty light um, and can have great applications. But the study, I, I don't know if it was like six weeks in length. So it's not like it's been studied. If you continue to train that light forever, would you keep growing or would you need to kind of, would you be missing out on something there? Would you kind of just become quite endurance based? We don't know yet because the studies are unlikely to be as long as we want them to be. So I think your rationale about making sure you're doing the heavy work within your kind of periodization model makes very good sense. Sweet. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, type one fibers have potential to grow. Uh, Schoenfeld has a paper out like a year or two ago about 
an, an article, a very small article on type one fibers and how they can grow. Of course they can. Um, they can grow quite a bit, but they're not very large fibers. They only make up maybe 50%. And when you hit larger fibers, there's the actually really nice paper by Andrew Fry a long time ago, <laughs> a long time ago, well over a decade ago. And he did this giant like systemic review on like all like periodizations, like papers regarding hypertrophy and intensities. And he plotted them and it showed that between I think it was like 75 to 85% was like the best gains and, and cross-sectional area of the muscle. And it, and it just increased linearly up to 85%. And often after that, it's kind of like a cutoff, which makes sense because after that is more neurological gains anyway and strength. Um, now, is that paper perfect? No. Has there been tons more research come out? Absolutely. But it's funny because now I'm seeing researchers go back and cite that and go, well, it's been shown this, it's been shown this. And, and it anecdotally, it kind of makes sense. Hitting that range of 6 to 12 really does hit the spot with uh, motor unit recruitment and gaining as much mass and type 2 fibers via biopsies that we've seen. So that's just kind of my rationale going through those rep ranges, um, you know, from 10 to 12 all the way. I, I mean, Eric Helms, uh, he's written something on, I think, uh, Greg Knuckles' site um, on the practicality of doing high reps. <laughs> and it, it works in the lab. It doesn't work when you're in the weight room. Um, there's a, tons of reasons why. Are you going to go to failure with 30% every set? No, it's that's not going to happen. Uh, so there's a practicality portion of that as well. And I know you're probably seeing some stuff on effective reps now. So everyone's talking about effective reps. Um, they're saying that if you do set a set of 25, it's not to that last five reps that are effective. Maybe. Um, to me, it's like, okay, well, we can add that into training, but let's make sure we actually know we're getting effective reps by really stimulating that muscle with, you know, between six to eight, at least at, at the higher end intensity. So... I don't want to delve in too much. <laughs> I've I've played with the um the twenty to thirty repetition range out on like leg press and things, and it it's pretty oh. it's pretty revolting. Um, but some it's even like on a leg press hitting failure on a leg press. If you let yourself have rests in between like your repetitions, which you could if you locked out at the top and you have a few breathers, it's like well, how long could you go for? Probably quite a long time. Um, so there's like. It's all those sort of elements as well. How do you distinguish like how long you're resting between those sets? The breathers, like it becomes rest pause to a point if you are really truly like taking it there and you're not considering that. So there's loads of considerations. And like um, we found in if you are utilizing like relative intensity, which uh, feel free to touch on as well, the higher repetition ranges, it, it's harder to know uh, whereabouts you are. Um, which has been shown in studies and even practically you can feel that as well. It's harder to know like um, a repetition doesn't quite feel the same. Yeah, absolutely. Like relative intensity, um, people perceive failure um, very differently within novice, intermediate, and advanced. Um, advanced kind of know where they are with RPEs. I know Eric Helms has done a lot of research in this, and I, I like reading his stuff on that because it's very practical. If you're working with a novice or intermediate, they think you're going close to failure, and then they can pump out like 10 more. Because when you get to that level of this like high, that, those high reps, the, the amount of just sheer like disgusting feeling that you get um, you don't want to do anymore, but for some reason you can still knock out another one. You can still knock out another one. Um, and it, it just burns. Um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah. Uh, the, a lot of the higher rep studies with the lower intensities to failure, they use something called an isodominometer. Are you familiar with that? I've heard of it, but yeah, maybe so explain it for the listeners. <laughs> sure. So in these studies with the higher reps, they, for example, we'll do a, you, can, you can set it up like a bicep curl or a quad extension. It's very easy to set up in that manner. Other manners would be very hard to do. So you basically sit in this really weird looking chair. You hook up your leg and you do a quad extension and you're, you're, you're like hooked up into it. So it's very unnatural feeling. You can't really move your body how you normally would. You're like literally strapped into this chair. And when you kick up, the machine will kind of accommodate whatever amount of stress you're pushing towards the machine. It kind of pushes back at you. So every single rep you do is effective. <laughs> so even, and you can make it to where when you kick up, it's effective. When you kick down, it's effective. The concentric, eccentric, you can control all that. So basically what they do is they control the concentric portion. So every single rep you do is very hard 
um, and very quote unquote effective. Now, how does that translate to the gym? It doesn't. It's, it's not even close to being the same, uh, cause we're not accommodated when we're do, when we do free weights. Um, you know, it gets hard when it gets hard and we can try and do things like bands and chains, but that's not nearly the same, the same as the, the lab where they can really, really tightly control that. So I'm not saying that research is complete trash or anything, but it definitely needs to be looked at with a, with a different lens. And actually on that point, I guess, um, you talked about kind of the burn and obviously the higher repetition range is good for getting a pump and where's your stance on kind of metabolic stress whether or not that's kind of uh, going to lead hypertrophy is it something that you ever utilize within your programming kind of whether it might be like myo reps or drop sets or giant sets supersets any of that sure sure um it's, it's something i've really thought about for a long time and again there's just like no clear answer yet because the studies are very hard and why these studies are so hard if you're listening and you're just like, why are they so hard to get these studies? Well, because it's very hard to separate things like mechanical tension, uh, metabolic stress, damage, all these other factors um, to be able to isolate them to say this caused this or this caused that. Because right now they might say, well, metabolites may uh, increase NPS, it may increase mTOR. Well, how can, how can you say that if tension is still there in the muscle when we look at it in the lab? So it's very hard to say. Um, I'm always trying to look for like studies where potentially one metabolite may cause an increased MPS or mTOR or some other aspect of the molecular underpinnings of uh, hypertrophy. Um, right now, I'm just very unclear on it. Anecdotally, I feel like getting a really nice pump, at least in tangent with like compound work, really helps. At least things like delts and biceps. Um, it definitely means that you're getting work done. Um, but I just, I'm not sold on the fact that just getting a pump and just getting as much blood flow into the muscle is that important, if, if at all, because it's very clear by now that tension developed on the muscle is the most, in fact, uh, most important factor, if not the only factor responsible for actually signaling muscle to grow mechanical transduction. So anything else besides that is just ancillary. So if damage correlates to anything we can get into, probably not. Um, it'd be ancillary to tension. Same thing with metabolites. So I do have some stuff where I, I try and do both. I try and make sure t there is tension when I do metabolite work and that the volume increases. Yeah. And I know you talked about as well. So the volume, th those principles are still there. But I'll in I will do metabolite work like myo reps or, or just blood flow restriction. Um, just for novelty. I think novelty is extremely important. And I think progressive overload and progression is not just volume load. And I think you might agree with this as well. There's something about working hard that equates to growth. And it, I mean, you see those bros in the gym, they don't read research and they're just working hard. Yeah, They're working hard and they're getting growth. So we can be like, oh, they're, they're sipping on their BCAs and doing some like whatever Jay Cutler workout where they're just pumping it out. Um, but they're still getting big most of the time. I think there's something to that. Um, I think hitting those higher rep ranges and getting those metabolites do stimulate something mm -hmm. uh, in tangent with the tension. And I think it's a novelty factor of doing that. Um, I have seen some research I sent around about a year or two ago where it's very hard to explain. So I won't get into the details, but they showed basically that metabolites clear very easily after like four or five weeks of doing metabolite yeah. training. Um, they looked at things like the artery in, in the, the leg, um, in the hamstrings and that kind of that, that knee area. Um, they looked at the way the arteries adapt, the, the venous structures adapt, metabolites, and they adapt very quickly. So even if you're doing straight metabolite work, that's only going to last how long? Maybe a, a, a macrocycle at that. So I, I think there's some totality of having a macrocycle of metabolites, but that'd be it. And I would just kind of go back to, you know, what we said about, you know, periodization and having maybe a little bit longer rest periods and maybe that'll be more novelty. Um, so I hope that makes a little bit of sense. No, definitely. Um, and you brought up some really cool points in that. I know, I, I don't know the mechanisms behind it exactly. I'd need someone smarter to say it for me. Jar I was speaking to Jared Feather recently and he was talking about exactly what you said there in that you seem to just adapt to metabolite work relatively quickly. So it's not something that you would use 
necessarily year round and it's more so something you thread in and do need to progressive progressively overload like you said like you would increase the amount of work that you're doing and kind of summing more metabolites over the course of that mesocycle so um, i think that makes good sense and i think if there was any big take home i would i think to give the listeners and maybe you can correct me on this is like make sure you're doing some work in like that maybe i'd say five to like 15 repetition range should be like a big focus of what you're doing and if you're never in that zone you may well be kind of leaving something on the table unless you're kind of have some horrible injuries that preclude you from doing that yeah yeah exactly um and if you're going to do high repetition work if you can sub in some blood flow restriction um blood flow restriction training has been shown quite a few times to be better than without blood flow restriction within the same rep range so if you're going to do 25 30 35 reps if you can you know occlude a limb do so you'll get uh better gains i guess um but other than that yeah i just don't see a a huge market for metabolites for myself like i wouldn't set up a whole training program for someone like we're going to go after metabolites um, I'd go after tension and tension overload. That'd be a primary focus. But there's something about fatigue that I think, and it, it's I'm going out on a limb, but I feel like fatigue in the muscle really does stimulate some sort of growth, novelty and fatigue. And things like delts. I mean, have you ever done delts and had like a three-minute rest in between? Like, it's like, what are you doing? Like, you're not, it's like you're not doing any work. Right. But for some reason, when I, go back to like 20, 30 second rest with like cables on delts, they blow up. And I mean, they blow up when you're in the gym with metabolites, but like I, I see them grow over time. Mm-hmm. So there is something about having that amount of metabolites in the muscle and fatigue that might increase the amount of muscle fibers and uh, recruit them rather. So I think it's in- important for motor unit recruitment to have a certain amount of metabolites in those smaller muscle groups, uh, especially. Um, and I'm not saying metabolites don't equate to anything, but it's hard to say with the literature um, that it for sure does. But it sure as hell seems like it mm-hmm. um, increases a lot of fatigue and motor unit recruitment that would equal growth, right? Yeah, and I, I think you touched on some cool points just throughout that in that um, we have research is hard and there's not a lot of research that is done on trained lifters. Uh, the majority of the listeners here, like there's very little of like of you who have been within the studies in that most of you outlift most of the studies that are out there probably and so it can be sometimes hard and i think some of the the bros i guess you'd call them are kind of somewhat against the science in some ways because they're like well it doesn't apply to me in in any way shape or form Uh, i don't know if that's anything you've kind of you've necessarily seen stuff anecdotally that has maybe um, is differs to the science or hasn't been kind of shown within the science is there anything there so as far as maybe things I've seen that has, hasn't been elucidated mm-hmm. in the lab, um, yeah, like everything. <laughs> um, we're, like there's such little research um, out there. And like you said, on trained lifters, it's very hard. And that doesn't preclude the untrained studies. Um, there's still That still makes a lot of sense to, to work with untrained people. Um, but again, it doesn't exactly cross over to all trained people. Um, a really big thing I'm getting into is inter, uh, I guess the variations between people who grow because there are non-responders right. and responders. And I have a good buddy, uh, Brandon Roberts, Dr. Roberts, yep. who's the best of the best. He's the smartest guy in the world. <laughs> I think he's the smartest guy in the world. Um, <laughs> he's fantastic. And his whole like research is on like variations and people inter variabilities and also mechanisms. And he did a lot of stuff on inflammation. And showing how inflammation, if you block inflammation, you block hypertrophy. And people who are non-responders, they might have an increase in that inf- inflammatory response. Um, these are just, you know, theories that need to be researched and researched and corroborated over time. But um, the things like, like I said, the really big thing I'm really interested in is right now is besides the variations and growth, it's just the sheer it's hard. It's, I guess it's hard to explain, but I guess not, not changing your volume that much. I think kind of taking it like an intro week and getting up to something that feels hard and staying there for a while, um, maybe increasing a rep here and there and some load, but nothing crazy, um, versus, Hey, let's try and increase load as much as we can and get to that MRV and stay there. Very interested in seeing literature on people going through that. And there's been two studies now that showed 
intensity versus uh, volume, where they've looked at higher intensity with a lower volume and then higher volume with a lower intensity and trained them. And is that relative and, intensity just to be? Yes, relative yeah. intensity. Yes. Um, so they have that. It would so it'd be like me and you training uh, more of a powerlifting style, and we did not equate volume and had a bodybuilding style. And they did higher volume work, lower, uh, higher reps, lower intensity. And then they have, you know, the powerlifting group, higher intensity, lower volume group, lower reps. And they grew. And they actually outgrew the bodybuilders a little bit. But it's hard to say because the sample size is so small. There's differences in growth and stuff like that. So it really crosses over. But those are the things I'm really interested in that we just don't have like literature on. Mm-hmm. like things like the the small things that mean you and i are interested in like drop sets and mile reps there's not enough research on and when there is research they are like literally on like untrained people or like elderly and they're like i don't know if that makes any sense to me um so th- there's just so much that we can go into about what hasn't been researched yet yeah but i think the most important thing right now that we can glean from the research right now is just tension mechanical tension we need that it's probably the most important thing that has to be in your training. We have to increase that over time. Cool. And something we've talked about, but I haven't got from you yet is relative intensity. Is that something that you utilize within your training? Do you use kind of uh, reps in reserve or RPE or are you kind of pushing more towards failure? Yeah. So when I first got into training, uh, online training as well, I use a lot of one rep max and, that eventually just kind of didn't make sense to me anymore. A lot of people don't. So if you look at the one rep max calculations, those were developed off like a deadlift. And then it kind of made sense because they did another study where they backed up and worked for squatting, but that's not how it was made. Like that was literally estimated based off like deadlifting and I think squatting. Then it kind of worked for benching. So people kind of used it for those three. And then there's differences with people. Um, training with those calculations as well if they're not perfect and they have no uh application for like bicep curls for example um so i kind of got away with that and i do rar or rpe um i do a lot of rpe so i use a scale one to Mm ten ten being failure and uh six kind of having around four reps left in the tank so when i train people we start them out with this very very easy intro week with like one or two sets each for each compound lift or um Two, usually one or two for a compound lift and one for like a single joint. And I use an RP of like six. And then I try and increase their RPs over time. And I try and really get them to eight and nine and stay away from failure. I don't like failure. Um, I use failure as a uh, kind of like a goal. Not really a goal, but more of a indication. Um, we, we use it as a, as a tool just to see where people are at. Um, higher level bodybuilders, I will use it you know, sparingly. Um, but I'm a big proponent of RPE and RIR. Um, what do you think about that? What do you prefer? No, yeah, I mean, I found uh, that I, I also, it's funny, when I first started online coaching, I also used the percentage of 1RM. I can't remember, I forget whose table it was. It was based off someone's table of programming and things. I think I was using Practical Programming by Mark Ripito and uh, Kilgore yeah. at the time, which was a really confusing book at first and it eventually i i kind of understood it um it has some cool programs in there but not really bodybuilding um kind of specific so i got away from that and now i'm heavily using kind of reps and reserves so i tend to start mesocycles at a three to four and then whether or not we move through three to two to one to zero and how many weeks that takes depends kind of on the person's advancement i tend right. to either it's a small addition of load uh on the week or an extra rep essentially um and as long as they're kind of recovering and they can stick it if they can repeat a rep in reserve like three and then three the next week but still see a progression perfect uh, most people yeah. end up seeing that drop off each week essentially yeah i i love using like rpe or rir um it just really gives you an idea of what's in their head per set and i kind of use it on a, on a set basis per set basis so if i have like three sets of 10 bench um, I like to see where their reps at for each set. So if I have three sets of 10, I like to see if it's like 10, 10, 7. So they couldn't get all the way to 10. And then an RP will be right next to it on my programs, mirroring that. And it'll be like, okay, 7, 7, 9. I'll be like, okay, I get it. That was a really hard set. 
but it does take some time for people to really grasp RPD for some reason. And maybe just they're just so new to them. It takes several weeks for them to be like, okay, this is what RPE means. This is this is my RPE, I think. And it takes a couple months for them to really be like, this is an eight. Because I've trained people online who actually live near me. And I did a training session with them. I'm like, dude, that is not a seven. Like, that's a nine. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm almost helping you get this up. Uh, <laughs> I, I do think the research is on point with novices not understanding that. But um yeah, I, I think that's the best thing to do. I got I got far away from using one rep max calculations. Uh, it just didn't make sense unless they're purely powerlifters. And even then, I still use it sparingly. It's a tool. It's a good yeah. tool to use. But it is a tool. Yeah, and then I'm the same. Um, I, I found some people end up pushing too hard too soon, and then we end up hitting failure too soon within their mesocycle. We have to deload, or other yeah. people they maybe were starting at like a five or six rep in reserve. So then the mesocycle ends up going like eight, nine, 10 weeks, potentially. Um, normally that is the people that are just a very quite novice yeah. intermediate and they're just getting used to it. But eventually you hit the failure point because you're continuing to add reps or add load. And eventually you're going to, it's going to hit you and then you'll get a true understanding of what that means. Yeah. Have you ever seen uh, maybe like where you're training someone and you have them at an RP six, let's say they're just starting out. And the next week they go, yeah, RP6, maybe seven. They're like, okay. So you increase the load and they're like, 10, failed. I'm like, <laughs> how do you go from six to failed? Like, you're not judging anything. So then you have to go back down and like re kind of recalculate everything. But yeah, it's a good tool, but it does take some time. Yeah, 100%. Um, so I don't know, we probably haven't got... Alex has done a brilliant piece uh, for Alan Aragon's research review on muscle damage and, and we haven't got enough time within this episode to really delve into it deeply but I don't know if there are any kind of takeaway points like anything very practical or anything about muscle damage that you think is maybe seen from the outside maybe seen incorrectly what are the kind of big take-homes that you'd like people to know about muscle damage potentially right um so maybe in another podcast, if uh, if it's popular, we can definitely get into the details and the nitty gritty on this. Because um, yep. that's what made me write this is as I opened up the realm of muscle damage research, there's just so much I didn't know. And I'm like, damn. Um, so there is a lot going on. And what's cool is muscle damage kind of when you go into the research part, you still have to look at tension. There's metabolites going on. There's inflammation. So all these things that are happening, you kind of have to investigate each one independently. Um, but just to kind of go over and gloss over the, the main points of what I found, um, and if you read the paper, um, it, it will go over all of this and it will kind of summarize as well. But basically, to increase muscle, we need a net increase in MPS, right? It's pretty simple. Uh, Breakdown, uh, you need to precede MPS with a, a decrease in breakdown of protein increase in, in protein synthesis, right? So what does that when we train? Well, lifting weights, tension. So we need tension on the muscle. I know we hammered this over and over, but it is important that tension seems to be the most important, if not the only thing involved with uh, hypertrophy. So why does, what is muscle damage exactly? You know, and we can get into that in another podcast, talk about hours about what damage is. But essentially, it's the components that make up the muscle tissue become disorganized, and that be, kind of creates damage. Now, we know that there's isometric, concentric, and eccentric contractions. Eccentric seems to be almost the only contraction that actually causes damage. If you're unaccustomed to exercise, that causes damage. Uh, if you're very new to training and do concentric only, that will cause a tiny bit of damage. Isometric, where things aren't moving at all, very, very small amount of damage if you're new. That goes away quickly. Eccentric damage, large amounts of damage, large. And we see those biopsies. And I actually have a picture um, on my uh, – I don't know if you're familiar with Medium. Um, it's uh, what it's kind of new. It's new to me, but all my articles are on there. But I have a picture of uh, muscle damage. You can see it's so clear. Um, it's called Z-line uh, Z streaming. It's just like sagging, like crazy. Um yeah, basically a picture of just a disgusting looking muscle. <laughs> um, so after that damage is done with eccentric contractions, we eventually see hypertrophy. Now, what's interesting is it's an eccentric contraction. So what else is familiar about eccentric contractions? Well, you're stronger eccentrically. A lot. 
stronger eccentrically. And we can go into the theory all day long about why, but we already know that eccentric contractions equal more tension. More tension probably equals more blow. So if we're seeing training studies where there's more eccentric training going on, and they go, oh, well, there's more damage, there's more growth eventually. No, it's probably just more tension. Um, so that's kind of the biggest takeaway is it's hard to take a study where we look at damage and separate the tension and the metabolites and the inflammation. It's, you can't separate all that. So yeah. we're very, we're taking these large guesses of what's going on. Um, another thing that's interesting is the only way to look at damage is either MRI. Um, I think maybe an ultrasound and yeah, an ultrasound as well as biopsy. What's funny about biopsies is that when you take a biopsy, you're creating more damage. You're creating more inflammation. So then you're looking, you're looking at the blood and you're like, Oh, there's all this inflammation going on. It's like, yeah, no kidding. You just stab someone with a giant knife. Um, so it, it's hard to delineate all these things, but it really comes down to the fact that eccentric contractions are very unique in how they activate. There's almost like a reversal of the size principle where you almost increase type 2 fibers first instead of uh, type 1 and going through. So you increase uh, the, the amount of muscle that is recruited. There's more tension going on. Um, what else is unique about eccentric contractions? Um, it's worth noting. I think that's about it. I think that's the most important part is just the, the fact that there's way more tension and, and I would say a preferred uh, motor unit recruitment strategy. Um, other things like the inflammatory response, I'm not too sold on like things like interleukin six from the inflammatory response has been written about extensively by like Schoenfeld and, and other biochemists. Uh, it, it does seem to be a player in signaling things, but without it, we still hypertrophy. Um, and that seems to be a case with other things as well. Like you get a lot of calcium buildup from damage we see inside the muscle because the sarcolemma literally rips open this bunch of calcium. Calcium has been shown to signal things like calcium dependent pathways um, that Without, if you block that, there's no growth. So we know calcium is important for growth, for signaling, but you don't need damage for that either. If whenever you uh, activate your muscle, there's calcium that's being uh, upregulated. So it's hard to say that damage is really tied to anything. Um, two things that really sold me on it not really being important is other than the fact that um, the motor unit recruitment strategy and attention is greater. Um, you probably heard of satellite cell activation right. from muscle damage muscle damage oh satellite cell activation amazing um the couple studies that have come out have shown that the my myonuclear domain does not increase with satellite cells after training and it's not responsible for further hypertrophy there's two studies that back this up um that i've seen I and mean, there might be more but these, these are very recent these are like the last couple of years um that satellite cells seem to be less of importance for compensatory hypertrophy and more in line with Things like growing from like uh, infant, like if you're uh, a mammal, uh, I think post-nanal mammal, um, growing. Uh, so going from like a, an infant to a mature state, satellite cells are upregulated and very important. So other than growth and maturity, uh, damage and repair. And people go, yes, right there, damage and repair. Well, that's damage and repair. Uh, to me... Repair doesn't sound like hypertrophy. It sounds like repair. So I kind of use the analogy in my head that I think about, like, you punch a giant hole in the wall, and you have to go get some drywall and repair it. That's nice. You don't have a bigger wall. You just repair the wall. So that's what I'm questioning, and it seems like the research is starting to back that up with the fact that satellite cells seem to not increase hypertrophy, especially in trained folks, because that study has been done. It doesn't increase the mononuclear domain. Um, and we, we thought that satellite cells govern just a certain amount of, you know, property in the muscle, but it seems that that might not be the case. Um, so I really question satellite cell stuff. The fact that, you know, muscle damage can mess with, uh, glucose. It's not, I mean, that seems really important, uh, gly glycogen resynthesis. So it seems to be a lot of negative things with damage and the, Biggest thing in the world is that study by Damas and Tall, 2016, where they showed that when the damage was uh, attenuated, that's when the growth really started to happen. That's when they saw it. They saw this giant spike in MPS with a lot of damage in these subjects who they trained the hell out of with eccentric contractions. There was no growth going. 
But when the damage was attenuated, then they started to see an increase in cross-sectional area that actually correlated with MPS. So the big picture seems to be that eccentric contractions are awesome for growing because there's a lot of tension. Um, and the practicality portion would be start off slowly with eccentric contractions, adapt to it, and keep them in. I mean, just don't go crazy with them. If you're changing things all the time and you're not accustomed to exercise all the time, you always have this damage going on, you're not going to grow very well. There's no way. Yeah, I really like that. And I think it's that's the important part for me is you you just don't want to be fucked up all the time, which is sometimes what you want. I mean, what bodybuilders yeah. are like chasing damage, they're like, oh, I feel so beat up and this is amazing. It's kind of like, well, you, like you said, you're not even repairing maybe on time, let alone growing. Like, where's that gonna? Yeah. Ha- when's that gonna happen? Um, something I don't know if I don't think it was touched on in the article, and something that always kind of hits me when I hear this. I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. Is I I believe that painkillers seem to limit damage, um, and then then they also seem to limit growth. Not on the elderly. I think the elderly they improve growth because they re- reduce damage and they could kind of train harder. I don't know if. I saw the, there was, I can't remember exactly. I don't know if you know the study where painkillers seem to limit growth because they removed, like, reduced damage. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Yeah, NSAIDs, non steroidal anti inflammatory drugs are complete shit for bodybuilding. <laughs> um, I mean, they, they completely fuck up your gut microbiome and uh, gut bacteria, which would be a whole nother topic. But they, uh, they decrease your MPS, like, substantially. So they've been shown to decrease your MPS. They've been shown to decrease testosterone by a lot. Um, those are two things that might not be the best for trying to grow optimally. Um, but again, we kind of touched on the fact that if you block inflammation, you, you can block hypertrophy, like seriously block that growth signal. Um, so if you're taking like a high amount of an NSAID, that might be problematic down the road. Um, I, I haven't seen all the research on this, but I really trust Dr. Roberts that that was his doctoral thesis was on inflammation and blocking. Uh, I think it's like COX-1, COX-2 pathways which is what stimulates inflammation uh inflammation is very very important for growth that whole i mean that is growth in, the, in and of itself inflammation you're bringing nutrients into the muscle amino acids you're repairing anything that needs to be repaired but inflammation doesn't just mean that you're repairing things all the time it means that you cause something uh some something mess with homeostasis in the muscle that caused inflammation and now you're bringing nutrients and everything you need in and things out um so I think a lot of people are thinking, well, if I take an ibuprofen, can I still work out? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, you can still work out. And you're still going to maintain your muscle. Um, I think a problem would be if you're on like a heavy steroid. And I don't mean like an anabolic steroid, but like a cortical steroid. Um, you will probably block the growth signal. Um, so I had thought exactly what you thought of is what if you're older? Could that help, uh, you know? That growth growth response and i'm not sure um it definitely seems so but then you have to take into account the side effects of that drug a long period of time mm. maybe the only thing i i really thought of as being uh interesting towards that would be taking things like maybe omega-3s uh, fish oils eating a low inflammatory diet um something that wouldn't cause inflammation in the body and really trying to regulate that naturally but probably do a lot uh, for elderly or someone with an inflammatory issue. Um, but it, it's very interesting, right? Like the, the studies that show like taking ibuprofen or Advil or something will decrease the growth response. Uh, yeah. can really in perspective some of those drugs as well. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Thank you very much, Alex. I think this has been a fantastic chat. Hopefully uh, the audience have taken a lot away from it. Uh, if they do have further questions or if people want to hear more about muscle damage, definitely comment, let us know. We can get Alex on again and we can go into this in some real detail. Um, I want to say a massive Thalix. thank you again to Alex. Th- Thalix is <laughs> I just shortened <laughs> thank you and Alex. Uh, if people want to reach out to you or find more of your work, I know you mentioned Medium and things, where should they find or go? Yeah, so- I'm on Instagram um, right now. I use Instagram as kind of like educational purposes. So you can always find me on there and DM me um, if you want more information or you want these articles or studies I'm talking about. My Instagram handle is King, P-I-N-G, Bovin, B-O-I-V-I-N. I am on Medium. If you're not familiar with Medium, get on there. It's awesome. It's a lot of just free information, studies, and great articles. Um, And my name on there is alexc.bovin. Uh, for my middle initial and you'll find me and click on me 
and like I think it says stories and it has all my articles on there. And they're completely free. So you can go on there, you can read them, educate yourself. Um, feel free to reach out for any for any studies or information. I love passing, you know, knowledge around. So I, I appreciate you having me on too. No, fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure that's all linked below so people can kind of get that easily. And I want to say a massive thank you for everyone for listening and we'll catch you soon. Thanks, man.